Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab talk with Laura. Welcome to the seventh episode of Lab Talk with Laura. Uh, I'm joined in the studio today by Dr. Ayla Akshamia, who is an assistant professor in the architecture department at UMass. She got her PhD in architecture from the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Uh, she is the author of two books about architecture and design. Before coming to UMass, she directed the Perkins and Will Building Technology Lab, one of the first practice-driven research labs focused on advanced building technologies. Her research on emerging building technologies spans the disciplines of architecture, engineering, and material and computer science. Thank you so much for joining us, Isla. Thank you so much for having me. Also joining us today is Francis Tainter, who is a doctoral student at UMass in transportation engineering. He completed his bachelor's of science in civil and environmental engineering from UMass in 2016 and continued on to work on his PhD with a focus in transportation engineering. He does research on human factors and traffic operations using driving simulations and real world field evaluations. Thank you so much for joining us, Francis. Thanks for having me. Uh, and joining us today as my co-host is comedian Kim DeShields, a.k.a. Boney, um, who is a member of the comedy production team, Comedy is a Weapon. Thank you so much for joining us, Kim. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Mine was much shorter than theirs. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should say what school I went to, what, what yeah. class you, I passed. Do you want to talk about no. it? <laughs> um, okay, so I think uh, we'll, talk, we'll start with Isla. Um, so do you want to just tell us about your research a little bit? Sure. Um, so my area of research is um, interdisciplinary focuses basically on high-performance high buildings, uh, building facades, innovative building technologies, uh, new materials, and uh, majority of research that I do is based on simulations and modeling rather than experimental studies. Okay. Um, so, for example, looking to novel materials in facade systems or ways to improve uh, building performance and energy efficiency or ways to improve daylight in buildings. Uh, what's kind of unique about my research is that, uh, as you mentioned, I led one of the first uh, uh, research laboratories in architectural profession. So a lot of my research is uh, based on real projects and re real architectural buildings and uh, designs uh, rather, th rather than theoretical work. Um, so um, in the past, you know, I have worked on healthcare facilities, uh, commercial buildings, high rises, uh, multi-use uh, buildings located around the world. So could you talk about like what are the innovative technologies that you're you're working on or sure. have worked on? So when it comes to innovations and kind of innovative technologies in architecture, there are kind of four major categories of innovations. One deals with new materials, construction techniques, and there are a lot of materials that have been discovered over the last 10 or 20, or 20 years that are finding um, um, implementations in architecture. So these include, for example, smart materials or advanced materials, different types of composite materials that have improved uh, characteristics like better structural um, uh, behavior, improved thermal behavior, and so on. So one like category of innovations is material-oriented. Then the second kind of aspect of innovations deals with um, 
um, sort of new tools and methodologies that we have available in, in design. So architectural profession has changed so much in the last 20 years. Mm. When we look into kind of technological innovations and ways that things have improved, it's really kind of all different ki types and tools that we have available uh, that are digital in nature. So, uh, for example, use of simulations and modeling, use of three-dimensional uh, building design approaches where different disciplines can collaborate on kind of a model-based approach to design and construction. So in the past, buildings used to be designed in two-dimensional way. So, for example, the final outcome of a, any architectural process used to be two-dimensional drawings, floor plans, sections, elevations that mm. capture the building design, uh, materials, components, dimensions, and so on. So over the last 15 years, that has changed. So now we are actually using three-dimensional building design and modeling. So buildings are designed in three-dimensional way. So there are all of these new computational tools um, that allow us to, to design using three-dimensional building elements, spaces, materials, and uh, that has revolutionized architectural profession. So rather than just designing in three dimensions, we can use the same models to simulate building performance, um, either performance of the whole building or like components of the building, for example, heat transfer through a facade system. Mm -hmm. um, and then different stakeholders can use the same model to, for example, to include information that pertains to architectural design or structural design or mechanical design. So uh, that has certainly revolutionized architectural profession. So besides like three-dimensional design, construction, you know, integration of simulations and modeling, uh, I would say use of robotics in architecture has, is another kind of innovation that's changing the practice. So what we have available today different types of digital fabrication tools. Uh, we can, you know, prototype and sort of do an integrated design, design exploration, and then use digital fabrication to build components of a building or a building facade, or in some instances, uh, small scale buildings as well. For oh. example, 3D printed components that, yeah, you know, are used in the uh, fabrication. So that's like the third um, general innovation. And I would say that the fourth one is definitely integration of research in architectural practice. So historically speaking, architectural profession has not been really strong in terms of incorporating research into practice. So historically speaking, research has been conducted at research institutions, academic institutions, not so much in the practice. So um, um, starting maybe 10 years ago or so, uh, the new uh, kind of interesting aspect is that we have integrated research in architectural practice where re research is driven by real projects, real concerns, real um, mm. um, real clients as well. And I think that is uh, uh, sort of all of these previous in innovations that I mentioned, new materials, technologies, uh, digital to tools, uh, are kind of requesting this to happen because mm. architectural pr uh, professions and practices, in order to stay kind of at the forefront of practice, they need to kind of engage science, technology, new tools, methods to kind of be at the forefront. So that's kind of relatively new and interesting. And I had an opportunity to lead uh, one of the first uh, um, research um, 
uh, research labs, as you mentioned at the beginning, that was part of a uh, large scale, one of the biggest architectural uh, companies in the world. And that was really exciting because when I joined that firm, there was not an established model. How do you actually do research in architectural profession? How do you relate that to the real projects? Because I think the major kind of difference between doing academic research and research in practice is the time frame. Time frame. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Things happen a lot faster in, in practice and budget and kind of funding mm -hmm. and, you know, where the funding comes from. Yeah. So what kind of research questions were you looking at at those, at the, uh, it was called the Tech Lab? Yes. Yeah. So um, the research covered kind of couple of different major areas. I think like one umbrella is definitely relating to sustainability, energy efficiency, how to improve energy efficiency of buildings uh, through uh, incorporation of innovative building systems, innovative facades, how do we design buildings to reduce the energy consumption? And that was kind of reoccurring, um, you know, research question regardless of the building type or the location of the, um, of the building. Um, and it's kind of interesting because when we start making decisions about buildings, like when you start any design process, the first kind of step is to look, at, look into the site, the context, the climate. Uh, requirements for that uh, particular building. The second step is to try to kind of uh, bridge those contextual aspects into a building form. So okay. like the, the very first step of the design process is that an architect comes up with a building form, volume, uh, kind of the basic kind of, um, layout for the building. Uh, at that particular moment, so many decisions are made that can influence later on building performance, like orientation of the building in relationship to the solar orientation or kind of the massing, what is the footprint of the building. Mm. So a lot of my, my work has been to, to kind of aid the design process and aid the architectural designers in coming up with those crucial decisions to try to minimize the energy consumptions from the start. Mm. Once we optimize the building form, the shape, then we look into building systems, integration of structural systems, integration of mechanical systems and different types of kind of energy efficient HVAC systems to try to reduce the energy cost. Uh, another area of my research has been um, net zero energy design. So basically trying to make our buildings um, uh, net zero energy, meaning that the energy that they use, they also produce oh. on an annual basis. Okay. So, so besides kind of trying to reduce the energy efficiency as much as possible, the additional factor that plays a big role in net zero en energy design is use of different renewable energy resources, photovoltaics, biomass heating, uh, wind turbines, um, um, hydropower for buildings that have access to water. Mm. Um, so it's kind of a subset of my research has been trying to understand how can we make um, net zero energy um, buildings. I think that research also continued since I joined UMass. I have been looking a lot into different types of buildings, how to make them um, uh, net zero, and not only for the new construction, but also renovation of existing buildings. Mm -hmm. So existing buildings um, um, are kind of a, uh, typically uh, use a lot of energy. So 40% um, of the energy usage in the world is used by buildings. And very large percentage is basically older buildings, buildings that have not been designed up to energy codes and standards. So I have been looking into existing buildings, renovation strategy that can be, uh, strategies that can be used to um, improve their energy efficiency. Uh, another subset has been building facades. My area of research um, um, and kind of applications 
have been manifested in the use of new materials, components. I also published a book on methods for designing sustainable facade systems. Um, so in that research, I have been looking to new materials, emerging technologies, smart materials, materials that have improved uh, performance, like thermal performance or structural performance, and how do they relate to facade design. Cool. Wow. <clears throat> <laughs> Can you come to my house? <laughs> sure. Make my raised ranch more uh, energy efficient. <laughs> I would love to. I actually do not do a lot of residential construction. It's mostly like complex building types. But I always give, give feedback and comments to my friends and uh, family. What are the s ways to improve energy efficiency at, on residential uh, level? Because it's kind of quite easy to do, improving the thermal performance, adding insulation to exterior walls, trying to minimize the number of windows and glass that's on on your building, and uh, trying to um, reduce plug loads, which are basically computers, all of the pieces of equipment that we plug into electrical outlets. Oh my god, I'm going to go home and get rid of my windows now. <laughs> <laughs> we still need some windows for views to the outside and daylight. We'll just have one, okay. <laughs> like a strip club. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm curious, so you talked about um, new materials. Are there any like really cool new materials that you've worked with or? Um, yeah. Sure. So one of the research projects that I'm working on right now and collaborating actually with the electrical and computer engineering department here at UMass are thermoelectric materials. So thermoelectric mat materials are smart materials that basically um, produce energy uh, if a thermal gradient is present between kind of the outside and inside. Oh, wow. Or they can also um, uh, produce heating or cooling if certain um, um, uh, voltages apply to it. Oh, wow. So uh, the EC the uh, team has been looking to new classes of materials and kind of understanding the the thermal transport on nanoscale, but we also found an application in the facade design. So we're collaborating on a research uh, project to find the application of these innovative materials in facade applications. So essentially we have designed and um, built prototypes and also did kind of basic testing to understand the performance of these new innovative materials and facade systems. So essentially imagine having a facade that can produce heating or cooling based on the differences in temperature between the outside and inside. So it's completely passive method. It doesn't require moving air like typical, you know, um, um, HVAC systems and it would improve thermal comfort. So this is kind of still in, in initial stages of the of the research. Uh, some other materials that are available out there um, are um, especially relating to facade systems, for example. Um, um, electrochromic glazing, which is a type of material that can change its tint when elect electricity is applied. So in our new design building here on UMass campus, actually the western facade um, incorporates this type of material. So rather than using shading devices to try to balance glare or uh, provide shading on, um, on that building facade, it's actually basically clear when electricity is not applied. When electricity is applied, it changes its color to kind of a blue tint, which then reduces solar heat gain and visual transmittance on that facade. So, wow. it's, does yeah. it, so does it look like glass? It's a it's a glass material, okay, but glass it basically material. includes a very thin type of film, uh -huh. uh, electrochromic film, um, um, that you know changes its uh, color when electricity is applied. So the benefit of that material is that you don't need external shading devices. You can have kind of a dynamic facade system that reacts to uh, sun. Uh, 
Yeah. Like uh, those glasses, right? What yeah, are they yeah. called? Yes. <laughs> they used I, to be like all the rage and then it photochromic, faded. Yeah. Photochromic. Photochromic. Okay. So it's a different type of film that's okay. using the glasses. It's a, that's a light sensitive one and yes. this is an electricity yeah. sensitive yeah. one. Yeah. So you have more control. It's exactly. not like, oh, the light it light hits and then it's right. done. Because that's not what you want. Exactly. 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 Okay. Another kind of um, uh, interesting development are phase change materials. So these materials are materials that uh, change their state from solid to liquid when temperature is applied to it. So uh, in terms of the building applications, there are products and systems out there that use them either in the building facade components or maybe the ceiling or the floor. And the main idea is that if the sun heats up that material, it actually from a solid type of material, it becomes a liquid, giving off heat and providing passive heating for the interior space. Oh, wow. Yeah. So typically these are wax-based materials. So, okay. so wait, does it, it becomes a liquid and it just drips off the facade? Maybe I'm not understanding. It's integrated. It's contained. And it takes like a specific <laughs> kind of engineering and um, uh, selection of a specific material that, um, you know, an operating temperature. So it's a very kind of scientific process yeah. in kind of tr choosing the correct type of material. Wow. So it's a typically a composite type of wax material or okay. material or salt that uh, um, changes its state, but it stays kind of intact. But then the big question when it comes to integration of these kind of new innovative materials and technologies are kind of long-term performance. Mm. So I think architectural um, profession and architectural industry is one of the toughest industry to, is, industries to be innovative mm. because of the risk and liability and so on. Right. So the major question and uh, is, you know, how do we make sure that a new material or new technology will perform well over long term right. if a material has been discovered only five years ago? So that was, has been also a lot of my work. So trying to figure, you know, these things out and provide some guidance to architectural uh, practitioners. How do they select the right type of material? How do they, how do they try to mitigate the risk and liability? Uh, in using these kind of innovative technologies. Yeah. Yeah, that is, so what are the strategies for dealing with that long term? Like, obviously, you can't study what's going to happen in 40 years without waiting 40 years. Or yeah. are, there, are there, like, ways to try to figure that out? Yes, in some in some cases, yes. In some cases, no. Yeah. So um, there are different manufacturers who sometimes do kind of a... Um, study where they try to simulate long-term performance in a relatively short period of time. So mm -hmm. for example, in the in the case of electrochromic glazing, the question is, uh, how does it perform over long term? Like if you're like switching on and off, uh, let's say for five years, for 10 years, mm -hmm. how exactly is it going to influence the performance? So the manufacturers are kind of trying to test this in a um, almost like in a speeded up process in a factory setting or, you know, testing lab. Uh, so, you know, sometimes that's possible or sometimes it's not possible. <laughs> sometimes yeah. you just need to wait and see. Um, and then we look into available literature, available um, um, technical documentation about the properties of materials to try to make an educated guess um, about the long-term performance. Wow. <clears throat> Do you even like HGTV? <laughs> <laughs> I used to. <laughs> you watch it with annoyance now, right? <laughs> it's not stimulating enough, right? 
So I'm curious, um, does, uh, you've talked about sustainability. Does like resilience to natural hazards come into any of your work? Or? Yes, okay. yes, yeah. I think um, when we talk about resiliency or sustainable design, resiliency is definitely a much overarching um, topic than just sustainable design. So sustainable design and energy efficient design definitely is integrated in resilient plans. So I have been looking into research relating to resiliency, resilient communities, resi resilient buildings. In my opinion, like one of the subcategories is energy efficient design, net zero energy design, ways to improve water consumption uh, um, uh, within buildings. And then what's really important when it comes to resilient design is kind of the location and the climate of the building or um, certain facility because strategies that work well for Chicago do not work well for Boston mm -hmm. or, you know, each particular location has its own kind of sets of guidelines and factors that influence that um, aspect. Something interesting that I have been looking into over the last couple of years are the effects of climate change on facade performance. So kind of doing simulations and modeling of uh, existing kind of conventional facade systems that we use in majority of the buildings, then some of the advanced facade systems where we have improved thermal performance or components that improve either thermal or daylight performance of facade systems and how exactly they will be behaving in the future with the effects of climate change. So for example, you know, we selected a certain number of um, conventional facade systems, uh, high performance facade systems, then we modeled um, energy performance in commercial buildings in 15 different climate types uh, across the US uh, using um, essentially historical weather data to the predict the energy consumption. Mm -hmm. Then we looked into the effects of climate change and rising temperatures in years 2050 and in years 2080 to see how exactly those facade systems will be um, performing. So long story short, uh, the results show that even the highest performing systems that we currently have available right, right now are not going to be sufficient oh to uh, oh <laughs> take into account the, the effects of climate change. So we are either have, so we will either even uh, either have to completely rethink the design process, come up with even kind of better materials and better ways to um, maintain, you know, interior thermal comfort and so on. So um, that's kind of an interesting piece of research. That's scary. <laughs> yeah, it is. I have to move immediately. <laughs> move where? Yeah, you have to help me look for a house. <laughs> so in Western Massachusetts, I think that even maybe client, uh, climate scientists are agreeing that uh, for us, it's not going to be so bad as for coastal regions oh. mm -hmm. that are going to experience uh, rising sea levels and but so like on. like Boston is going right. to have a lot of more challenges. Exactly. So I think what will be um, um, uh, happening here is probably higher temperatures and kind of more heat waves in the summer. So each particular location, you know, has to have like specific guidelines for resilience and meeting those mm. um, criteria. We also have heat waves in February. Yes. <laughs> That's the standard part of our lives now, the teaser. <laughs> I'm not opposed to that. <laughs> Um, so I'm curious, do you have like a favorite project, like a favorite building project that you've worked on? Or is that 
maybe you've worked on too many for you to pick out just one. I definitely worked on too many that are located <laughs> all over the wor world. But one of the really exciting projects that I had an opportunity to work uh, to work on is a relatively new hospital building located in Chicago okay. called Rush Univers University Medical Center. So it's a large large scale hospital. It actually has nine hundred thousand square feet of space. So really humongous. Um, and the design of that hospital started in 2005, it lasted until 2009, and the building was constructed in 2013. So in the design of that very large-scale hospital, we actually conducted so much research, so, um, um, you know, we incorporated, like, the latest technologies that are present in healthcare facilities. We also looked into ways to improve the energy performance, um, you know, we used a variety of new materials so it's definitely one of the most exciting projects um, that I had an opportunity to work on and actually the building is shaped as a butterfly even the shape and the overall form of the building was a result kind of the of the research and evidence-based design basically uh, we tried to come up with a building plan um, that would minimize the amount of walking that doctors and nurses do in a healthcare environment. Mm. So basically the building is shaped as a butterfly with four kind of wings with a major nurse station centralized in like one spot so that we try to minimize the amount of walking that oh. they have to do on oh. these like four parts of the building. That's so cool. <laughs> wow. So from like an aerial view, yes. it looks like a butterfly. Butterfly, And then yeah. does it have that glass that changes color too? We looked into, so that particular building has probably seven different types of facade systems and wall types. Okay. So the main facade system is basically what is called a rain screen system with mm -hmm. aluminum cladding and windows. And that type of facade system improves thermal performance. And then there's kind of an interesting space. So that building is located uh, to an existing building because the hospital is part of a larger medical campus. So the medical campus has probably like 20 buildings or so. And University of Illinois in Chicago is uh, located nearby. So it's basically a research hospital as well mm. um, and used for teaching and so on. So there was an existing building that was built in 1960s and then the new building that we worked on and then a special space kind of connecting the two, uh, the existing building with the new building. And for that kind of, we called it the entry pavilion because it was meant to basically not only be the entry into the building, but entry to the medical campus as well. And the clients really wanted to create a very special type of place. So we look, looked into so many new technologies that we, that we can uh, integrate. Double skin facade systems, which are basically, again, a novel facade system. So it's almost like enclosing a building within a building okay. to try to improve the thermal performance. Uh, we designed a sort of a special part in that entry pavilion which brings in nature to the inside. So basically if you walk into the lobby space, there's a terrarium which has like a tree and a landscape area and it's completely open to the outside, but it's within the building. Wow. So uh -huh. uh, um, it's open to the outside on, on the top, but basically walk into the, into the building and there's like a landscape area, like a garden, almost oh, like a small okay. garden. That sounds really nice. Wow. So we know where we need to be when the apocalypse hits. <laughs> <laughs> the best hospital. Yeah, the best hospital. <laughs> Get some nature. Too. That's important. Wow. That's impressive. And then another project that pops, pops up to my mind is also a hospital project, but located in Kenya. So basically, um, uh, 
the, the major kind of idea behind that project was to try to use extensive sustainable strategies to improve the performance of that building, uh, taking into account the location, the climate. Uh, so it's like essentially the, the roofs of these buildings were designed to include uh, photovoltaic panels uh, for energy generation. So the building um, massing and volume and kind of design of the building was driven by that design decision from 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 the beginning. Mm -hmm. Wow. Nice. They use vibranium. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I just saw the Black Panther movie. <laughs> I saw it. I loved it. It's one of the best movies it's that I've seen. Ever, lately. right? It's yes. so great. Yeah. And I loved all of the techni technical and technological gadgets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a really fun aspect of the movie. Yeah, really great. So, how, do, is vibranium a realistic thing? Or <laughs> can you speak to that? No. Uh, <laughs> not that this, maybe in the future, but right now we don't have uh, anything close. Like, Kevlar is the closest to it mm. but it's nowhere there and I think material scientists have been looking into different types of carbon nanotubes um, mm. that can be added to different types of materials to improve that strength but I think wow. right now we're nowhere near what is portrayed in the movie <laughs> but maybe well, in the future it, who knows it serves like all different types of purposes to be yeah. like it's like protective but then it produces energy it does so many yeah 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 I, I kind of knew that the answer was no. I was too embarrassed I to ask. I didn't know either. <laughs> just gotta ask, right? Cool. Um, well, so is there anything else you'd like to talk about before we maybe move on and talk to Francis? I, I think cool. the only thing that I would like to mention is um, architecture is typically not considered a STEM discipline. Mm. So, you know, over the last 20 years, I've been trying to basically talk to people and talk to people outside of uh, architecture, architectural engineering, architectural technology to basically uh, change this notion because we do use uh, scientific principles, we use uh, innovative technologies. It's a very much STEM field with kind of the added benefit that we use both the left and right side of the brain. Mm. So architecture is definitely kind of interdisciplinary in nature, you know, kind of merging and integrating the STEM fields with the creative side and design. So it's very much based in STEM uh, with the added benefit of kind of requiring this creative and design side. Yeah. You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst. My guests today are Dr. Ayla Akshamia, who is an assistant professor in architecture at UMass, and Francis Tainter, who is a doctoral student in the transportation engineering. My co-host today is comedian Kim DeShields, a.k.a. Boney. Jumping right back into it. Okay, so I think we're going to move on and talk to Francis about his research. Um, so, Francis, can you just tell us about what you do? I'm, I just wanted to say this is awesome hearing about architecture research and everything. I can't top that, not even close. <laughs> so, um, but, yeah, so I'm a grad student uh, here at UMass. Uh, and like you said, I, I work in traffic operations and safety. Uh, and so kind of similar what Tyla was saying is that I do a lot of simulation and modeling. Mm. Um, but a little bit different aspect is that we use you know, this area of Amherst, the Pioneer Valley, as our living laboratory. So we can go out and do traffic studies, collect data, um, analyze it in our lab, build a, uh, what we call a micro-simulation model study, where pretty much you're essentially modeling what happens out in the field on a computer software program and, and kind of pick and choose where you want to change, um, say, the geometry, make a new design, and see how that affects um, the system as a whole. Um, so a lot of simulation modeling there. 
uh, is what I do. You know, modeling for not only just the operational aspect, but focusing on traffic safety. I'm trying to improve safety and make sure that we can save as many lives on the roadway as possible, essentially. Um, but another cool aspect of my research uh, is working in the driving simulator lab here on campus. So it's the Arbella Insurance Human Performance Lab. Uh, it's up on the north side of campus. Um, and it's probably the coolest thing I do, I think. Um, so we actually work with a, a full car driving simulator. Um, and essentially, you're, you're building scenarios into the driving simulator that uh, represent existing field conditions. So you can put any scenario that you want into there and essentially test subjects on some sort of you know geometric alternative or alteration or some roadway variation of some sort um, and test how the drivers will react to it and how that will affect their behavior and their comprehension on the, the entire design itself. So um, I love being a part of that lab. I think it's one of the, the coolest things that I work on, but yeah. That's, that's like a video game. I'm coming over there. <laughs> I know. I'm that's like, can we schedule? <laughs> Do you need any participants for yeah. any studies? Uh, yeah, most people who come in, they're like, all right, so I shouldn't treat this like a video game, right? And I'm like, no, you probably drive normally. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a lot of fun. Okay, so are you the one I complain to about these rotaries in Amherst? I'm just saying. <laughs> I get all the complaints. All my friends come up to me like, all right, so about this traffic signal in such and such place. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm not a professional, but I can give you some, you know, feedback, I guess. Yes, I get that a lot. Are you working on specific problems here in the Pioneer Valley, or are they kind of more general type problems like... Here's how you de design a ramp or like what? Um, yeah, I think uh, some of the cool projects that we've worked on are, uh, for instance, uh, it was a project I worked on a couple years ago, but um, so I don't know if you're familiar with the intersection down by Lowe's on Route 9. Yeah. So there's mm -hmm. that added lane on the right side yeah. that gets added and dropped down upstream and downstream of the intersection. So I worked on that project for a while, and essentially we wanted to figure out why nobody was using that lane. So huh. nobody was using that lane on the right side, and we want to kind of understand why. It's designed for a reason. Obviously the designer put it in there to maximize the capacity of the intersection. Um, and we wanted to figure out why, so we, we built a... a, um, a project in the simulator and we tested out um, kind of a bunch of different variations and what are the different aspects that affect the utilization of that right lane um, and ultimately it ended up being just a familiarity whether people understood why that lane was there or not mm. um, it didn't really have um, it's actually still ongoing one of the projects uh, kind of a spin-off of that but uh, that was one of the cool projects was kind of really relative to this area um, but a lot of other research that we do in terms of roundabouts um, you know, deflection angles, approaching a roundabout, um, how do we make sure drivers are entering the roundabout at a safe speed and not um, causing any, any uh, safety hazards as they approach the, the roundabout and things like that. So mm. uh, a lot of it is relative. Like I said, we can use all of these intersections around of a, as, as living laboratories and collect real data out in the field and, and analyze it ourselves. So. I feel like I know exactly which lane you're talking about by Lowe's. I and I yeah, I totally know. I yeah. see people use it all the time to pass me on the right. Exactly. <laughs> That's yeah. what I see. That's the biggest complaint Unsafe I got passing. <laughs> but it bottlenecks, so it doesn't even it, make sense. It like right. it, it starts yeah. and then it stops and it's abrupt and it's right. and so I think I thought it was just for turning into Lowe's. I mean, it, it acts as both. I think so. When they redesigned that intersection, when they put the Lowe's in, they added that lane just to make sure. Because Route 9 is a mess yeah. sometimes. So um, they wanted to make sure they can get as many cars 
cars through that intersection as possible, but it's a lot cheaper than having the two full lanes throughout the entire stretch of Route 9. Uh, so it's okay. kind of the cheaper option to make uh, sure you can get cars through the intersection. So that's why those lanes are there. Yeah. Cheaper. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially. <Yeah. laughs> so when you build these simulations, um, do you have do you have like an actual car go and drive that route and then you use that footage to make the simulation? Or no, is it so uh, we use a, it's a modeling program in the simulator. Uh, it's called Sim Creator. So you, you essentially develop the world yourself. So it, you, you go in, it's pretty much a video game. You get to okay. build your world, put your buildings where you want them to be. Um, and design the roadway. So the way uh, some of us are doing it now is that we're building it in, say, AutoCAD. You're building a 3D model of the roadway, and then you can pull that um, the 3D model into another program, add the texture up to it, and then put that uh, roadway into the simulator program uh, to, to make it more realistic. Exactly, you know, lane widths, the geometric design, everything is exactly as you would see in the field. So. Um, you're able to kind of mix and match and put put the the world together as you want to, so it's it's really cool. Huh. Mm -hmm. Wow, interesting. I just have never met anybody who <laughs> studied traffic. <laughs> <laughs> you're not the first person. To say that. Do people um, get like road rage in the simulator? <laughs> I've never experienced it myself, um, but. That there are people who get really frustrated in there because it, it's interesting because when you're in the car, and actually we, we just upgraded um, six or seven months ago, so we used to have, um, it was like a 1994 Saturn sedan. <laughs> wow, that's even older um, than my car. <laughs> yeah, and it was <laughs> only 100, 130 degrees of view, um, so we had three giant screens and the Saturn sedan in there, and that was our driving simulator, uh, and last June, I believe, we upgraded, so... Um, we upgraded to a 2015 Ford Fusion. Oh, um, so it's a new cab um, with uh, all these high-tech gadgets in the in the cab, and we also have four more screens. So it's almost 300 degrees of view now. Oh, wow. um, and so the mirrors itself have two monitors on them to see behind you. You have a new uh, rear view mirror as well. So um, we upgraded, but uh, I've never experienced. Uh, of drivers who get road rage in there. People get frustrated because when you're driving around, it can be a little bit sensitive in terms of steering and everything. People get kind of frustrated, but um, simulator sickness is a whole other thing that I won't get into. Uh. But people, people, it's like it's like going into um, I don't know when when you go into when you're doing the virtual reality and you get dizzy from from the moving around. Uh. You you get immersed into this environment. But then you have to step back and realize, okay, this is like real life. I'm not, I'm not actually in this environment. People have trouble doing that, and they can sometimes, you know, get a little bit dizzy. Oh. That. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That happens to me in the 3D movie. <laughs> exactly right. You put the 3D glasses yeah, okay. on. Yeah. Wow. I guess I can't do that. <laughs> <clears throat> so, um, one of the things you included in your description is that you do human factors mm -hmm. uh, engineering. So, yep. could you? I had not heard about this until recently, and I think it's a really cool thing. Could you just maybe explain what that is and yep. talk about it a little bit? Yeah. So, human factors is essentially the driving simulator. So, when you're testing a real-world environment on a subject, you're 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 working with human factors. So, the lab is interdisciplinary in that we work with psychologists, we work with industrial engineers. Um, so, a lot of it is trying to understand. Um, driver behavior. So you're under trying to understand what the drivers are thinking when they make these actions um, when they're in the simulator. So um, the, the human factors part of it is really trying to focus on how this road or this design or, or autonomous vehicles, which is upcoming, um, how that affects the driver and what the drivers think about um, that when they're um, 
in the vehicle and actually uh, undergoing the scenario. So wow. Yeah. Have you done any research with autonomous driving, or is that some, that's something going on in the lab? Then yeah, it's going on in lab. I don't I don't do too much, but um, I, we we're doing a lot of research with that in terms of uh, a cool project going on is trust in automation. So how drivers will trust the transition, so the takeover of automation. So when you're driving a vehicle, and then so one of the levels of automation that is out in the field now is um, the, the car will take over and start driving by itself. And so what is the trust there for the driver? of, of how, how trusting are they that the vehicle won't make a mistake um, when they're in the vehicle? And, and do they kind of look around? Are they comfortable? Um, and measuring that comfortability and trust in the vehicle <laughs> is something that a study is going on right now, yeah. If I was a subject, mine would be at zero. I would be in the <laughs> cab panicking and freaking, oh my God. <laughs> is that, so are you talking about um, not self-driving cars so much, but when cars take over in like accident situations? Or is yeah, so, so autonomous vehicles, it'll, it'll kind of be a staged in thing. So yeah. there, there's, I think, I might get this wrong, but I think there's six stages of automation or six levels of automation. Um, and so essentially going on from you know, automatic cruise control, or, or which is one of the things that's in a lot of cars now, or parking assist, those things, those are, cert those are parts of the early stages of automation. And as we move up into fully autonomous vehicles, um, there's the transfer of control. So um, having a driver in the driver's seat with the steering wheel, but basically essentially having the driver just sit there while the car takes control and drives itself. So that's one stage before we move into the fully autonomous vehicles. So. Um, so it's we'll kind be of comfortable. They're stage. gradually. <laughs> they're moving their way. Yeah, they're yeah, taking us there step. slowly. Yeah. Oh, my God. Do you use cruise control, Kim? Hardly never. <laughs> you, don't, you don't trust that? It's not even that. I just, uh, it feels weird to me. Like, mm -hmm. I, you know, you're trained to press the accelerator and, you know, brake. And so I think it's just habit or whatever. You're just mm -hmm. used to it. Yeah. Wow, that is so, that's mind-blowing. Mm -hmm. I'm going to need a chauffeur. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> How far out are we? That's a tough question. <laughs> <laughs> if you had to guess, what um, would you? I think, I mean, it's really difficult to say because I think uh, the, the private companies are moving at such a more rapid pace than the, the public. So working with the government is going to be really difficult in developing standards on how we integrate autonomous vehicles on the roadway. Private companies like you know Google and Uber are miles ahead um, developing autonomous uh, vehicles. And so... Essentially, it's going to be finally when the, the federal government and, and the public agencies catch up to them is when we're going to have them. I don't necessarily see personally autonomous vehicles on the roadway for another 20 or 30 years. Oh, okay. mm -hmm. But That's far I, th out. I think, I mean, I think in my lifetime, definitely, we're going we're gonna to have fully autonomous vehicles on the roadway. It's going to be a completely different thing. You know, I'm going to be older telling my kids and being like, yeah, I remember when we used to drive cars ourselves. <laughs> um, who knows? But um, Well, they're testing them out in Pittsburgh, yeah. right? Yeah, there's multiple test sites across the country. Different mm -hmm. states have uh, allowed um, testing sites to be uh, going on. So there's a lot of places across the country. California is huge in it um, in designing uh, autonomous vehicles. There's a huge test site, test site in Michigan um, at the University of Michigan where they're we're testing autonomous vehicles. So. Uh -huh. So I have to live till I'm 80 to see this. <laughs> Damn. Don't quote me on that. I don't know. <laughs> if it doesn't happen, then I'm going to come looking for you and be like, I don't have much more time. Um, I'm curious, is the lab here, the, um, the simulator, um, is that a really unique lab or are there a lot of labs like that? Um, Do you know? I think being a, a full immersion, high fidelity driving simulator, it is pretty unique across the country. There's, there's a lot of uh, driving simulators 
um, across the country that a lot of uh, research universities have and are using um, uh, and frequent. But I think we have probably one of the top ones in the country. I know there's a lot of other driving simulators and a lot of research universities, like University of Wisconsin has another really good uh, uh, driving simulator. Um, uh, University of Iowa is actually, they have the coolest driving simulator I've ever seen in my life. It's actually um, a, dri a car that's in kind of like a pod, encapsulated in a pod, and it moves around in a warehouse. So the thing with our driving simulator is that it's stationary. So you don't necessarily feel all of the driving movements when you're in there. Mm -hmm. So when you push the brake, you don't necessarily feel the push forward and the, and the pullback from the acceleration. But the one at the University of Iowa is huge. It's, uh, you're basically moving around, and so it moves backwards, forwards, sideways. So you're feeling, and it spins around, so you feel all the real um, movements of a car. So it's much more real. But I think ours is, is really good for what the space we have. I think um, it's a really cool driving simulator across the country. I think it competes well. What kind uh, of car do they have? Theirs? Yeah. I'm actually not sure. Like a Bulgari or something? <laughs> <laughs> I think it might be a Ford. I'm, sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you find uh, the people who do these simulations for your studies? Um, usually we just advertise across campus. So I think it's a blessing and a curse because we get a lot of college-age students that they say, oh, $15 for 30 minutes of work? Yeah, I'll do that study for sure. So we compensate all of our drivers, or all of our participants. Um, and so normally it is, it depends on the study though. So, so sometimes you want that older population, you want to mm -hmm. test older drivers, or you want to test younger drivers, say under college age, so brand new drivers. Um, so it really depends on the study, but um, typically we advertise across campus. We have, um, I think on our website, we have like a Google Doc that you can submit and submit your, your information. And once we need people, we'll just go through our list of people and just email you out and ask you to come in and participate in the study if you're still willing. So I'm doing it right now. I'm filling that form out because I'm psyched. I feel like you're going to get an influx maybe if people listen to the show. I'm an older driver. <laughs> and I could use $15. <laughs> <laughs> I'm there. Yeah. So um, can you talk maybe about the projects you're specifically working on? Is there anything exciting happening right now for you? or is Sh it Sure. Yeah. So I'm actually, right now, I'm not necessarily working fully in the driving simulator. Okay. Um, I'm working more on, um, I guess I'll get into it. It's, I'm, I'm working on a project right now uh, that deals with uh, flashing yellow arrows. So okay. um, flashing yellow arrows were implemented like eight or nine years ago um, in the standards, the, the nationwide standards. Um, and so pretty much, I don't know if you've seen them on the roadway, so when you're at a signal you have that flashing yellow arrow instead of the circular green ball. Um, so when those were implemented nine years ago, uh, a lot of the, the standards were kind of left open-ended and they didn't really necessarily figure out how we want to implement these signals uh, and how drivers will comprehend the new implementation of the signals. So a lot of the research that's being conducted now is trying to understand um, how do we safely and uh, efficiently implement these new traffic control devices into the real world because a lot of states across the country still haven't even implemented them at all so it's kind of catching up it's lagging like I said public and private catching up with one another um, so having all of the state agencies come together and design uh, in a similar fashion is what we're looking into you two are the most interesting people <laughs> <laughs> wow thank you I didn't know what to expect coming here but I'm pleasantly like surprised <laughs> and I can't wait to go out and tell people what I know you know nice. about buildings and traffic wow yeah. 
Do you have any like funny anecdotes from the driving simulator? I think we're really focused on the driving simulator because <laughs> it's like the most. It's very novel to me. I've never. Yeah, I wasn't even aware that that existed mm-hmm. at UMass, so it's mm-hmm. really cool. They used to have like a really bad one at um, Amherst High School because that's what we learned on to drive. Really, and it was like a four speed and. And he had a screen, but it was really primitive, like nothing like what. Because yeah. uh-uh. they, they didn't, I don't know if they even had like, you know, they didn't have any money. So was it, that, <laughs> was, that was for driver's ed? or Yeah, definitely for driver's ed, yeah, learning. and Because um, they were teaching us about skidding and driving in the direction of the skid, things uh, like that. Yeah. And it was, yeah, you sat in it, it felt mm-hmm. really like a video. And mm-hmm. it was kind of cool, but really not, you know, similar to real driving, of course. <laughs> but wow, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've, uh, I've had some interesting stories about when people come into the driving simulator. They, um, they usually want to just treat it like a video game. Like I said, they. That's why we always give them a practice trial run. <laughs> give, we'll give them a practice scenario so they can kind of get used to, you know, their bear get their bearings in the simulator and understand what they need to do. Um, can't think off the top of my head of any funny anecdotes that I've gotten. A mm. lot of people just comment on how fun it is yeah. <laughs> to be in there. Um, but that's pretty much it. I, think. I don't know why this is where my brain goes, but I'm curious if like, so obviously you talked about how there's like this intersection of psychology with the traffic design <laughs> and all these things. But like, have you ever looked at like ethical questions or like, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking about like swerving to avoid animals, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, do people, do, are there animals in the driving simulator that people can like hit? I know that's kind of a morbid I know we can, question. I know we can put in pedestrians. Oh, I'm not really? actually sure about animals. That's actually a really good question. Mm-hmm. We're I less concerned about pedestrians. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> it's about the animals. <laughs> I'm sure we could figure out how to program animals into the simulator. I don't know if we've done any studies on that. That's not the kind of stuff you're yeah, working on, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious, Laura. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I think of. That's like the biggest issue I have with driving is yeah. that I'm scared I'm going to hit something, you know? I'm always swerving, and I, then I curse them out afterwards, you know, if they <laughs> made it across safely. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's so stressful. Try, you know, you don't want to kill anything. Oh, my God. Cool. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about before we maybe move on to the last part of the show? Anything um, that didn't come up? Yeah, I guess the one thing that's kind of cool that we're working on now is kind of the application of drones. and the So a lot of people don't think about air transportation, but that also falls under our umbrella of work. So in the, the inclusion of uh, unmanned aircrafts uh, in in this day and age, uh, inclusion of those in the airspace. So mm. how, do we, how do we standardize the use of drones? I know that the state and the federal government are coming up with uh, uh, procedures and standards for uh, pilots, you can say, to how they should fly drones, where they can fly drones, when and where, things like that. Um, and so we actually, we have a brand new air traffic control simulator here at UMass. We just got uh, a, a big grant last year as well. Um, and so it's, it's pretty cool, I think. I haven't worked with it too much, but we have this air traffic control simulator that can essentially mimic any air traffic controller uh, from any airport across the United States. And so you can kind of immerse yourself into this air traffic control uh, booth and and deal with the different flight patterns wow. um, and we'll be able to implement kind of drones and how those will affect the airspace of you know real aircrafts and, and things like that or larger aircrafts and things like that so the application of drones is is something that's really uh, up and coming I think and something we're looking into a lot in terms of how do we safely integrate those into the, the airspace I thought so. they were already being used they are but 
I'm a they're, conspiracy they're theorist. <laughs> <laughs> I felt a lot of concern about drones, like spying drones, mm-hmm. you know, until I interacted with a drone and realized they're really loud and you can totally tell when yeah. one is near you. But I don't know if that's true about all drones, but mm. yeah. <laughs> I, I felt they're pretty loud, too. yeah. I yeah. think so too. I actually, there was um, this funny incident, like there's a, I used to live in East Hampton and there's a Facebook page for like all residents of East Hampton, like a forum for people to just discuss things. And there was this outdoor uh, play happening, Bread and Puppet, and somebody posted on the East Hampton Facebook page, whoever's flying their drone above that Bread and Puppet performance, please land it. We can't hear the actors. (laughs) (laughs) They were trying to do air traffic control via Facebook group. (laughs) Basically, they were like, land your drone. We hate it. (laughs) It's restricted airspace. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what the rules are. I mean, I've been seeing a lot of really cool videos of, you know, and then sometimes you'll see ones from places where you're like, I don't think they're supposed to be flying in that area. There's a lot of cool research being done, um, especially, I mean, with structural engineering, a lot of uh, bridge inspections and things like that can be done with drones now. So instead Mm -hmm. of sending people up there uh, to inspect um, visually, they can send the drone up there with a camera and get just as close as you could with human contact and and understand the structure just as much as you can. So there's a lot of cool, cool applications of drones that are, I think, just being understood now and being pushed forward. So I think there's a lot more to come yeah. with drones, especially in our field with, with traffic. Uh, yeah. I think there's a lot of cool applications out there that we're just learning to kind of step into and, and see what we can find. I think they should integrate it into dating, too. <laughs> How's that? So you can just check it out for us on this. <laughs> <laughs> just fly your drone over to somebody and give a look. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh boy. <laughs> Endless opportunities. <laughs> okay, I think we're ready to move on to the last section of the show, um, which is we play a little game I called GTA. Guess that acronym. Did I warn you about this game? No. I need to start I, She you. likes games. I totally am not surprised. You know? I'm psyched though. So. The way this game works is um, our guests have provided with me with some acronyms commonly used in their field, and we're going to ask him to try to guess what they mean. Oh, great. <laughs> no no <laughs> consequences here for unanswers. And so basically the reason I came up with this game is that I feel like in the sciences we use acronyms to communicate a lot because we talk about subjects and we have a shared language, but it's something that when trying to communicate with people who aren't part of our field or subfield, it can be a barrier to understanding. So the idea of the game is to kind of break down these barriers. Subfield, I was brought here to be embarrassed. <laughs> that's actually the result of the game. I need to maybe come up with a new game that's not as hard on the comedians. This is payback. It's okay, though. Okay, so we'll start with our architecture acronyms, okay? Your first acronym is AIA. Mm. Okay, Architect, architects, uh, international association. Nice, close, close. <laughs> Architectural. What is it? I American like. Institute of Architects. Okay. It's basically mm-hmm. a national organization that oversees of uh, professional development licenses in architecture and so on. It's like basically the biggest national organization for architects. Nice. Okay, your next acronym is BIM. <laughs> Or BIM. BIM. B-I-M. Basement. No. Um, building uh, something modulator, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, building um, 
God, that's hard. Um, <laughs> boost inside movement. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. It's interesting. It's uh, building information modeling. So when I was talking about model-based design and construction, basically 3D model is called a building information model because it contains all of the information about the building. Gotcha. So is that yeah. an acronym that you toss around? You're just like, all oh, a BIM, a BIM. Yeah. yeah, and everybody knows that. So <laughs> as, when I was describing that, I made sure sure not to use the word BIM because uh, I was thinking that I would give it away. <laughs> <laughs> well, and we also would have just not known what you were talking about. So say it one more time. It's what? Building information modeling. Okay, so I did get the first word, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah great job. Okay. <laughs> That was hard. We don't have we have acronyms in comedy as well. LOL. <laughs> uh, I know that one. L M A O. L F M A O. It's not fair. You know mine already. <laughs> okay, we'll move on some to uh, some transportation acronyms. Okay, well, I know these. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> F you. <These> ones. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we got one more acronym. Okay. I feel like I really now know what it's like to be on Family Feud. <laughs> <laughs> on the spot. And I've screamed at the screen like, you dummy, but now I, I get it. I totally get it. <laughs> um, okay. Our last acronym is TRB. Mm, that sounds like a strain of marijuana there. <laughs> Tribe, um, no, okay, traffic. Um, oh, ah, mm. turkey, r ribs, and bacon. That sounds like a good sandwich. <laughs> um, damn, okay, transportation, research. Biotechnology. <laughs> really close on that one, though. It's the Transportation Research Board. Board, okay. Yeah. So, the mass collaborative group of uh, transportation professionals that conduct research on all sorts of things, transportation. Cool. Okay, well, that's the end of our show. Thank you so much for joining me, Ayla and Francis and Ken. You're welcome. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Great. Cool. It was a good time. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst. I'm your host, uh, Laura Federuso. Our guests today were Isla Akshamia and Francis Tainter. My co-host was comedian Kim DeShields, a.k.a. Boney. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Support for online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is provided by the Emmerich Lab in the Polymer Science Department. You can check out Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook, SoundCloud, or subscribe on iTunes, so please go do that. And tell me what you like about the show or don't like, what you'd like to hear on future episodes and all of that. Stick around for WMUA news coming right up.